Hello and welcome to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Nate Mancini, I'm one of the founders of Forefront, and joining me today is Forefront Chairman, Rich Chrisman. Happy to be here in Dallas, Texas. And we have a very special guest with us today, and that is Gregory Wolf. Mr. Wolf, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Gregory Wolf is a writer, editor, publisher, and teacher. He's been a pioneer in the resurgence of interest in the relationship between art and religion. In 1989, Wolf founded Image, which Annie Dillard has called one of the best journals on the planet. Now one of America's top literary quarterlies, Image is a unique forum for the best writing and artwork that is informed by or grapples with religious faith. He also launched Slant Books, which is an independent, not-for-profit literary press. Now, the reason we have the opportunity to speak to Mr. Wolf is because we are here together at the Catholic Imagination Conference in Dallas. So a big thank you to Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson and the team at University of Dallas that made this conference and this podcast recording possible. So, Greg, what brings you to the Catholic Imagination Conference? And since we're here together right at the beginning, uh, what are you looking forward to most about it? Uh, well, I've been... Uh a Catholic myself now for many years. I converted when I was in graduate school back in 1983, and in large part because of the influence of Catholic literature and, and visual art in particular, mm, yes. um, helping me find my way in my faith journey. So, uh, you know, the great 20th century Catholic writers like Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy, mm -hmm. J.R.R. Tolkien, George Bernanos, Francois Mauriac, Shusako Endo, Graham Greene, Evelyn Waugh. I mean, the list is long. Muriel Spark, I could go on. Yes. But the, the, the witness of these writers and the kind of, despite all their differences of style and subject matter, just a kind of deep connection theologically, spiritually, in, in what they saw was very compelling to me. So that's been fundamental to the, my own sense of vocation, my own sense of mission in the world. And so this community here, this is now the fourth conference biennial event. Yes. Uh, the people who founded it are people who have been colleagues of mine, people I've published an image or through slant books. Right. or I've spoken with at other events. And so it's sort of a community of writers and scholars who know each other. And yeah, it's a, been a small enough world that we, we, we tend to be you know, inviting each other to similar events. But the, yes. the beauty of what's happening here is that it's expanding, uh, the audience is growing. Hmm. Yes. And a gr much wider variety of people, people of different faith traditions. Yes. Such as yourself are finding something vital and compelling about what's going on here. And that obviously for some old timers like myself, you know, <laughs> is exciting and yes. encouraging that what we've been working at is is finding is having bearing fruit. Absolutely. Praise God for that. Yeah, there's so there's so many people that I've followed and respected who I was surprised to see on the list of speakers and, and kind of looking down the list and saying, like, I know this person and this person and this person, and what a blessing to have them all in one place and be able to get to speak with them. So I'm very, very grateful to be here. 
So most of this conversation, of course, will be about uh, timeless things. But perhaps ironically, we'd love to start with a lightning round, which is where we ask you some really short questions. And we just want you to answer with the first thing that comes to mind so we can get to know each other a little bit. Sure, <laughs> go for it. So if you, you do live in Washington, correct? I live just north of Seattle. Yes. Now, if you could not live just north of Seattle uh, in Washington, where would you like to live? Uh, probably northern New Mexico. Beautiful. And why is that? Uh, because of the rich tradition of the Hispanic Catholic culture there and the way it intersects with the Native American tradition. Uh, it's a place where these cultures have met. And, of course, the landscape is stunningly beautiful. Yes. Inspired artists and painters especially, the blue of the New Mexico sky. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's a place that seems to f nurture art an artistic, you know, uh, approach to the world. Yes. Can I just say that that answer exceeded my greatest expectations? <laughs> so, thank you. Yes. Well, I grew up in New York City, so I always have a slight twitchy desire to see what it might be like to go back, but hmm. I might be disillusioned if I did. Yes, yes. So, I believe you spent some time studying at Oxford, is that right? That's correct. Uh, what is one thing you miss about your time studying at Oxford? Beer. <laughs> good, good Do they beer? not have that in Seattle? <laughs> Real beer, like not the cold, fizzy, pale stuff here, mm -hmm. but the, yeah. the 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 flat, you know. Rich ale, you know, real real ale with real cultures <laughs> growing in it. Yes. Do you hear that, Sean O'Hare? I spent uh, about a year and a half living in London, but unfortunately, I was there when I was ten years old, so oh, I did not well. get to partake in the <laughs> the beer culture, <laughs> the ales. So, uh, setting aside fine ales, do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. Okay. Espresso, preferably. Oh, but stronger Se the better. Seattle definitely has influenced me along those lines. Yeah, living there now about twenty-two years. A good coffee culture. Oh yeah. What is your go-to activity when you want to relax or be refreshed? Open world or or strategy turn-based video games. Amazing. Very cool. Yeah, I've played Civilization six longer than most people have been alive. <laughs> <laughs> longer than this civilization. Yeah. Um, so besides Image Journal, what is your favorite print publication, like a journal or magazine? Oh, besides Image. Well, I have great admiration for a magazine called Plow. Um, yes. It's mm -hmm. really just another place of dynamism, of, of ecumenical Christian thought. Uh, and not just esoteric thought, but writing and reflection that kind of asks us not only how, what we think or what we believe, but how to live mm -hmm. existentially. Like, yeah. So it's not just an exercise in, in ideas, but it, it's really grounded in the deep questions of, you know, how do we carry ourselves in this world? How do we relate to time and space and technology and yes. human relationships. I, I like the richness of that a mm -hmm. matrix that they work out of. Yes. Love that. If you could put one piece of original visual art in your home, regardless of where it currently is, its price or availability, so any visual art that you can imagine, which piece would that be? Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> I mean, you're talking to a guy who grew up in New York City, going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I mean, I guess the sentimental answer would 
be sort of a letdown to I, I, I admire the painter Hans Holbein. Mm-hmm. Um, he comes out of this Renaissance Christian humanist era uh, that in many ways is very similar to our own. And, and I've talked a lot about the what I call the tradition of Christian humanism, Yes, which has got me in trouble because for many years <laughs> in America, people only heard the word humanism modified by the word secular. Correct. And they, ironically, that's a newer approach to things. That, mm. And it poisoned people's attitude towards humanism. And humanism uh, is really just, it's like the humanities. It's a, it's a love for uh, art and literature and history and language topic studies that, that help us understand what, how God made us. Yes. In our full humanity. And it's precisely to go back to what I was saying about Plow, it's it's about thinking about how to be human as fundamental to, to the spiritual life. That is, we're not angels, we're not disembodied creatures. We live in the here and now. Yeah. So Holbein's portrait of Erasmus, who's mm. the greatest of the sort of Renaissance Christian humanist thinkers and my kind of patron saint. That I would love to have, <laughs> followed closely by his portrait of St. Thomas More, Amazing. who was a close friend of Erasmus <laughs> and trying to do the same thing. They, were, they lived in an era of culture wars, mm-hmm. of extreme politicization, extreme division. Which we couldn't possibly relate yeah, to. Yeah, how could we imagine that? <laughs> and they were trying to say, look, you know, rather than going to these, getting more violent and more extreme in your positions, what do we have in common as human beings? And Mm -hmm. let's read literature and look at art, these concrete things that are about the way we live in the world, and that softens and at least gives a context for discussions of ideas and political decisions. It it humanizes, literally, humanizes our conversations and and our imaginations. Because otherwise, we get more abstract, and the more abstract you get, the more violent, and you, you don't you don't talk to anybody because you're just all you're interested in is imposing your will on somebody else. There's the idea of conversation, of if you, even politics in the old sense of give and take, mm-hmm. gets lost. So that tradition of Christian humanism is something I've always loved. So this is. I've completely failed to do the lightning round. <laughs> you, well, I've you now, wrote a manifesto on Christian humanism. I'm sorry I failed you here. I think this is a lightning round. This is a, a significant <laughs> thunderstorm, and I'm okay with that, I think. It's, a, it's an excellent lightning round. Uh, which musician or singer-songwriter do you listen to most often? Well, that's interesting. I, I, I listen primarily to electronica when I'm working. Interesting, yes. Because I want something steady and driving. Yeah. Help me, you know, get the work done during the day and let my brain focus on what it needs to. But I I there are a number of singer-songwriters who again are people that I've tried to champion over the years and sure. feature and image and conferences and workshops that we've held. Um, one of my favorites is a guy named Joe Henry, mm. who's also a famous producer. He's produced some incredible artists over the years and won a Grammy or two. Uh, he's a singer-songwriter who's you know, kind of an acquired taste. His, his lyrics are, are a little opaque. They're kind of poetic in ways that don't just lay it out for you in the way that yes. a pop song does. But then they also are ones that you want to go back to again. You know? Yeah, 
real real depth. And there's a spiritual dimension there, a Christian dimension there. It, you know, yes. it, you have to have eyes to see or ears to hear to to pick it up. But that's mm-hmm. very much a part of who he is. And so I've I've just admired him as a as a craftsman, as somebody who who makes beautiful things. And you know, in an era of hyper commodified production line, you know, right. where music is created in boardrooms at Sony and not, you know, not with people, <laughs> right. you know, picking at a mandolin somewhere. Yeah, with formulas. Yeah. You know, the artists who, who really stay grounded in the craft, you know, that's, that's always been kind of a hallmark of what I'm looking for and what I'm trying right. to promote, which is difficult because it, it, it takes a little extra energy to contemplate those things. Yes. And, and uh, you know, I'm always competing against stuff that's easier and snappier and and all of that, and so sometimes I pout and wish, you know, that I wasn't always, you know, off there on the side, you know. But yes, trying to educate people, Christians in some ways, particularly that learning the the intricacies and the beauties of how art is made enriches their lives and their imaginations, mm-hmm. and actually enables them to see the world more deeply than they would otherwise, and. You know, it's it's difficult when you when you when you pursue that line. People are going to call you elitist. Yeah, they're going to call you snobby. You know, there's yeah. this very inaccessible this populist mentality here. But what are the things that you know? I mean, pop music, uh, rock and roll. It came out of things like blues and mm. jazz. Came out of the sort of African American experience of slavery and. People, you know, picking at their guitars and making music, you know, and the deepest riches of our tradition are ones that are steeped in craft and in yes. quality and and this human dimension. And we, we really, you know, in this era of instant kind of fast food culture, we need to fight against that. So yes. I can occasionally pout that people are calling me elitist and all that's all. But, you know, it's like, try it. Like. Read yes. a read a better book. Don't read a book that is obscure that only sells twenty five copies. Because maybe you're going to discover something that'll blow, right. blow your mind. Right. Sometimes the most important things are uh, are the least popular. So one final lightning round question: Who are one or two authors writing today who give you hope for the future of fiction literature? Well, <clears throat> we're right here at this conference where a, a, a writer named Jonathan Geltner is going to read from his debut novel, Absolute Music. Beautiful. It's about uh, a struggling fantasy writer uh, in their very much our world, very much kind of a younger generation. Yes. And um, it's a book that is reminiscent a little bit of Walker Percy. There's a kind of character who's a little bit lost as a writer and lost as a husband and as a parent and struggling to try to find meaning in the world. And... So this is a kind of an existential journey that this book takes the character on. Yes. So I would keep an eye out for Jonathan Geltner. The book is called Absolute Music. What Great. a title. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me ask you uh, the question I was, I was alluding to earlier uh, when we first started talking, which is that 
when we started Forefront, we thought it may be difficult to find these uh, artists of faith who had this this strong orthodox faith and were also actively creating art of a high caliber that wasn't necessarily overtly religious. Um, and in a way, that was correct. I mean, I think it's a lot easier to to find people who are making like liturgical art or church art um, than finding these artists of faith creating work elsewhere in society. But at the same time, the longer that we've worked on Forefront, the more we've kind of been overwhelmed and encouraged by the sheer number of artists um, who, who are doing this. And uh, as I mentioned, you've been doing this work 30 years uh, before we have, and, and there's, you have this rich history with image of highlighting these artists of faith. So I wanted to ask, you know, what was your experience uh, early on? How hard was it to find these sorts of artists working in mystery and paradox and subtlety, um, artists of faith? And did that, uh, did that get easier over time? Did it grow over time? And, and what is it like today? That's a great question. Yeah, I think... I approached this idea of a quarterly journal that would feature contemporary writing and visual art and articles about music and architecture and dance and all these things. And, yeah. and, I, and I really researched it and I looked at what other Christians had been doing. And I, I, I came to certain conclusions that, that really formed how I went about what I did. So one of the things I noticed was a lot of what had been done in previous decades uh, was what I would call tribal mm. Christian groups that really ended up publishing like their own in-group, whatever they kept them together, whether they were, you know, their their politics or their denomination or their region. And I really wanted to publish something that was out in the mainstream culture. I didn't want to yes. fall into a, a subculture. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I don't. I, I certainly believe in the beauty of the church, and I want the church to be the church to, to do what it does, which is to build up the body of Christ. You know where you are, but an, an arts journal isn't a church and shouldn't be treated as such. And I right. wanted, I wanted image to be out in the world. I wanted it to be on the same newsstand rack next to the New Yorker. I didn't I didn't I wanted to avoid the kind of catacomb mentality that Christians in this country fall into, you know, woe is me. Mm. We're persecuted and you know, okay, we could go into all the political debates of the last 50 years, that's fine, but <laughs> the question became to me is what if we did it differently? What if we looked not to do the in-group but just the sheer excellence? Yes. Mm. What if beauty and craft and excellence were primary and we saw what happened mm. and the amazing thing for me is that you know we got incredible reception on the part of this mainstream literary world we went to all the yes. big conventions and people shook our hands and because they admired what we did they're and they were almost relieved they're like oh thank god you're not these sad little <laughs> christians who huddle there in the corner saying it's life sucks and you know, here's a sonnet I wrote yesterday. You know, you guys, <laughs> you guys, you guys care about us, what we're doing. You know, yes. we may not share your faith, but we we want to read these stories because they're so well written that we want to see what they what they bear witness to, because you know we we trust anyone who has mastered the craft to this extent that they've created believable characters and incredible, you know, deep. 
mysterious symbolism and all of these different things. Yes. So um, in that sense, I think we really wanted to avoid that falling into the kind of Christian ghetto mm-hmm. mentality. Yes. Beautiful. Our next question actually comes from another author, and we have an audience question from Scott Cairns, who is an American poet and essayist. Scott asks the following. Greg, in the late 80s, when Image first appeared, writers of faith, albeit plentiful, were also obliged to be somewhat circumspect regarding the degree to which that faith was manifested or otherwise implicated in their published works. In the 30-plus years since then, writers of faith appear to enjoy greater freedom to engage their faith in their works, yes? Now that we are entering what some have called a post-secular age, can you speak to the role that Image and its authors and other artists have played in the recovery of an openly spiritual discourse? When we started, uh, there was definitely a sense, I think the 60s and 70s were maybe the high-water mark of what I would call aggressive secularism. Mm-hmm. where anything with the kind of spiritual, Christian, theological dimension when it was in the literary, artistic world was literally kind of laughed off the map where there was just right. kind of an aggressive get-out-of-my-face kind of mentality. But right around the 80s, things began to change in the larger culture. You know, the there was... You know, postmodernism is a complex phenomenon, and we can, you know, rail against the parts of it that we don't like, we think are deleterious. But one of the positives of postmodernism was that it said, you know, the danger of of the world is when we create a master narrative that tries to account for all aspects of reality and control mm. what isn't what doesn't fit and when people realized that that could be applied not only to old master narratives like Christianity, but new master narratives like hmm. Freudianism or Marxism, hmm. yes, that secularism itself had become a master narrative, then people began to realize, you know, if we're going to be honest about this, then everybody deserves a place at the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And every voice needs to be heard. And it's then up to you to, to find whether those voices are persuasive. Yes. And for me, this is why art is so important, because art is about persuasion. Mm. I, I quoted um, this singer-songwriter, Joe Henry, a while back. One of my favorite yeah. passages in one of his lyrics is, and this will sound a little controversial, but he, he has this line where he says, He who cannot, cannot be seduced cannot be saved. Mm. And what I take from that, I, yes, it's obviously a risque thing. It's meant to provoke you, but it's meant to also make you think. You know, to be seduced means to be drawn in by something, yes. to be led, to be attracted by a kind of beauty that makes it, it affects you at a very deep level. And that's what conversion to me ultimately. What Christ wants us from us is is our our free response to, to the beauty that he is and creates. Right. And so when you know we talk about art, we're talking about the role that the beauty plays, the attractive force rather than mm-hmm. the proclamation or you know let's let's win votes, let's impose let's write laws. you know all yeah. those are important things and have their place, although when they become the sole technique, they become <laughs> they become monstrous. but yes. My role, the world I've operated in, is this world of persuasion, this world, because that's what art is. Art is this indirect, you know, it appeals to us at a very deep level and it calls to us. And I think God's call 
is best understood. I mean, the current project I work on is not image. It's called Slant Books. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Emily Dickinson famously said, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Right? Because that indirection is not not meant to be, uh, you know, like just fooling people and, and being obscure. It's about giving the individual space mm-hmm. to experience something and to move it with their own judgment, with their own interpretation, because otherwise, you know, just being something's imposed on you. Right. And so the idea of being part of a public sphere as a Christian without fear and, you know, devoted to your craft, doing making good work, we believe that's a genuinely evangelical act, yes. even though it's not overtly evangelical in the traditional sense that people imagine. Right. Direct proclamation. Right. Even Christ himself, right, em- employed these ideas of mystery and paradox and parable and th- things that were not, f- people did not find to be directly clear preaching. Parables um. <laughs> were mysterious. Yeah, and sometimes like nonsensical, like they mm-hmm. don't, they didn't, didn't seem fair, didn't seem just, yeah. didn't seem logical in any way. But they made you think, and they made you stop and and reflect. Right. Yeah. Ca- captured the hearts of those who are ready to listen. Hmm. Well, we have another audience question this time from Makoto Fujimura, who is a renowned painter and author of many books, including the recent book Art and Faith: A Theology of Making. Uh, he asks. Has the publishing industry changed during the pandemic? I assume yes. If so, how has it changed? Yeah, I don't know that the pandemic fundamentally changed. There were some things that were already in process, you know, I think maybe accelerated by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, the growth of small indie presses, I think, is is you know has been accelerated by the, the technology that allows you to do print-on-demand. You don't have to print a thousand copies of a book and pay rent at a warehouse to put a good book out. And you right. have the, you, there's, the, the bars to entry are, are, are lower. And I think while that means that a lot of not great stuff mm-hmm. will mm-hmm. get out there, it means that some great stuff that will get out there as well. And God willing, we, we find our way, we get attracted to that, to that good stuff that's right. out there. So yeah, I think um, the pandemic, you know, certainly provided an opportunity to, to reaffirm the, the power of literature, the power of, of, you know, quiet reflection when people rediscovered it, somewhat different attitude towards time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. I think, you know, it, it, it simply reinforced certain trends that were already kind of on their way. Yeah. Yeah. I've always found it interesting to that balance that you referenced there between uh, when we popularize and democratize, you know, and, and make easily accessible the the production and you know uh, sharing of art or ideas in general, you're going to get a lot more ideas out on the table. And I've always uh, just been really intrigued by that balance. Like, you know, is it uh, ultimately better or worse? You know, we, if when we have a myriad ideas and, and, and pieces and thoughts on the table. Uh, there's a lot to sift through and some really mm-hmm. demonic things come out, right? But there's also the possibility for those uh, beautiful and true and good things to find a spot on the table. Yeah. Uh, like you were saying earlier about the 
kind of reintroduction of the spiritual at the table once we realized culturally that uh, there's many monoliths out there. So yeah. uh, interesting. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I uh, read your book, Intruding Upon the Timeless, Meditations on Art, Faith, and Mystery, uh, which I think was this collection of essays uh, that you, you had wrote that appeared in various editions of Image over time. I think it was a neat way of kind of glimpsing your thought process on the purpose of Image and how it applied to various ideas and culture shifts over those decades. So I thought I'd use some of the themes of those essays as jumping off points for, for some of the questions here. So. Uh, one of your stated objectives with Image Journal is to bring forth mystery. It's right there in the tagline. Uh, and in your essay, Unsolved Mysteries, you talk about the mysteries inherent in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, you say, the genius of the Judeo-Christian tradition is that its central dogma are mysteries, from the covenant with Abraham to the Trinity, incarnation, and resurrection. And as an outflow of this, you have uh, this, this manifesto we mentioned earlier about religious humanism. And one of the traits is that, quote, the religious humanist refuses to collapse paradox in on itself. Mm -hmm. And you acknowledge um, that these things aren't necessarily uh, popular or attractive. You say, the truth is that human beings find it difficult to live with paradox. It is far easier to seek a resolution in one direction or the other, <laughs> rather than holding to the paradox. Uh, but you know these these ideas of mystery and paradox are are central to your view of what makes for great artistic work, um, and and has been in in your work of editing an image. Can you talk about some of the the artists or works of art that you've experienced or ones that you've featured that you think really did this masterful job of generating mystery or maintaining a paradox? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that always surprises me about the way Christians reflect on the nature of life and is, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about the truth and mm -hmm. things like orthodoxy and doctrine, and all of which are beautiful in their own way, but one of the one of the paradoxes, <laughs> or maybe this is just a contradiction, a flat contradiction. Um, a paradox is a contradiction with meaning, with depth. Yes. But sometimes there are just plain old contradictions. <laughs> um, you know, we talk about being fallen creatures, right? Mm -hmm. uh, sinful creatures, about limited God. God's ways are not our ways. You know, the infinite, almighty, omniscient, omnipotent God. Yeah. And yet we then we start talking about truth. And we very easily slip into a modality which seems to contradict the very awareness of our fragility, of our weakness, of our lack of omniscience. Mm -hmm. And to me, what art has always helped me to, to remind me of is uh, of my limits, of, of the fact that, that I think when I think I've grasped truth, it, it, it often darts away from me. Or when I try to control it, when yeah. I think I own it, when I think I've got it, it's mine, yeah. that's dangerous. There's an egotism there. There's a fear that I'm clutching onto this. And so for me, what art has always reminded me of is, is of my contingency as a fallen, struggling human being. And, 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 and therefore, art uses ambiguity, this, this, this way of representing the world that reminds us of the choices are not always clear cut. We may have commandments, but then how do you apply them? Life gets messy. Right. There's so many things going on at once. The thing that was easy, you know, when it was abstractly said, suddenly becomes difficult. That's why we need 
Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Right. Yeah. We need these guys to help us, you know, understand how to navigate the complexities of life and be aware that, you know, um, our decisions are fraught with consequences and mm-hmm. are not always clear cut, that we need to stumble mm-hmm. and we need to experience, you know, God's forgiveness and mercy, you know, after we hurt people and we do the wrong thing. That's, mm-hmm. to me, what storytelling is is all about. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, the, 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 the idea of celebrating something like ambiguity, some people look at, you know, some Christians respond to that. Well, that's just what your way of saying that there isn't such a thing as truth. No, 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 mm-hmm. not at all. Mm-hmm. Yes. It is saying truth is there, but my ability to hold on to it and to share it is limited by my sinfulness, by my limitations. Yes. And I need to, to be humble about this. I need to hope and pray that I share with you some truth, but I, I'm, I'm always learning. I'm making mistakes. I'm improving. It's not a kind of one-time thing. <laughs> yes. And so art is the process in, by which we play with ideas, by which we try to test the big abstract truths in human experience. And if they survive there, if they make sense there, then they will, I think, stick in the human heart. Mm-hmm. If they're just ideas in my head, eventually I'll get bored and I'll be attracted by something else more concrete right. and, more, and more compelling. So I think understanding our sinfulness and our limitation is precisely what ought to make us, you know, grateful that art is there to help us to figure this stuff out. Yes. So good. So another key word in your work is, of course, imagination. Uh, In an essay called Liturgical Art and Its Discontents, you've said... Believers who fear the imagination prefer art that doesn't stray too far from the church porch. They want to see things they already know gussied up with ornaments and flourishes, but art at its highest pitch tries to tell us things that we don't know or have forgotten, and that can be unsettling. Mm -hmm. So this idea of sometimes the most important art being unsettling, and yet something that's unsettling may be so, it may be that way for good or bad reasons. How have you gone about evaluating what kinds of art are exactly what we need? Those unsettling things that awaken our imagination about things we've forgotten versus art that is simply strange or irreverent. And what are those keys that you look to find? Yeah, this goes back to something we've already been saying, this sort of mm-hmm. uh, the kind of dualistic mentality that Christians in this country are, are prone to, which is to say there's there's Christian things, there's religious things, and there's secular things, and mm-hmm. there's things outside of the world of God. and The sacred-secular divide. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, and so what happens is you get a notion that the most, the, the way to be the most faithful, the most orthodox, the most spiritual, is to constantly harp on the sacred language and to just repeat it endlessly. Mm. I know some singer-songwriter, a singer-songwriter friend of mine who was went to Nashville and talked to a mu- you know, music producer and said, I, I love your work. If you could only say the word Jesus more, you know, we could sell a million copies of what you do. And she wanted to write stories about single moms raising kids, you know, and trying to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. All of while God's mercy, God's mercy and love are there in the shadows of that 
yes. that narrative of that story. And, you know, and she was bro- brokenhearted by that kind of response that she got. Mm-hmm. Um, Be I mean, more didactic. Just, <laughs> right. We're just talking about the parables. The parables aren't about, you know, religious things. They're about fathers and sons and workers in the field and yeah. about life, the life that God gave us, right? Yeah. Why do we have to, you know, be pious all the time. The way to be pious is to believe in incarnation and to believe that Christ is present in our human experience in, in many different forms and to and to find him in the concreteness of the everyday. So mm-hmm. you know, I when I wrote that piece about liturgical art, it was you know, it was trying to say you can make sacred art that doesn't immediately have to be a cross or you know, uh, a nativity scene. You know that yeah. we let's let's just go go for it, and not live in this kind of divided dualistic mentality. Let's believe mm-hmm. that creation is is of a piece. In your essay, Going Underground, you discuss the constant pressure that artists have to promote their work and compete in the marketplace. Uh, You say, first and foremost, there's the stress of economic survival, which for most artists is a lifelong struggle. My guess is that the majority of artists do not resent the market economy so much as the need to advertise themselves and gain public recognition. The private, solitary act of artistic creation is one thing. Stepping outside of that inwardness in order to push the product is something utterly different. So I'm I'm curious in your interactions with uh, churches and other institutions that support the arts, what kind of positive models have you seen for artistic patronage um, that you think are are things that we might duplicate? So uh, one example I'll give is we have a, a musician friend who is an artist in residence at a church, and he does uh, do worship at, at church on Sunday, but he's also, the rest of the week, he's simply creating uh, beautiful folk music um, for other purposes and for other spaces in life. And so it's kind of a neat way that he's both supported and helping the church and creating art and serving the community. Um, so I just wondered, you know, have you seen models like that or, or other models that you feel like can be really positive for both institutions and artists alike uh, that would work work well today? Yeah, I think at the heart of that question, you know, really lies the role of the market. And uh, don't get me wrong, I'm, 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 I'm all for the free market, but it doesn't account for all of reality. It, if, mm-hmm. if it was the only rule, then a lot of good stuff would be, you know, be missing. Uh, yes. A lot of the books and works of art that we love now were obscure in their day and didn't sell. I mean, Van Gogh is the most obvious example, right? I mean, yeah, his works go for millions now, and he couldn't, you know, he couldn't get a bottle of beer for one one of those paintings back in the actual time. And what that means is, you know, that this mentality, and frankly, it, it permeates the church too. There's this mentality out there that's that, that I disagree with that uh, what sells is good, mm-hmm. because often what sells is what's the fast food version, a culture of fast food, and the stuff that asks a little bit more of us but rewards us more deeply, it doesn't sell as well. And that's Mm -hmm. where we have to, that's where the nonprofit world, that's where patrons come in, that's where we simply carve out a space to say, do do what you do. 
we're not going to, you know, I, I've seen ways of people, they're constantly businessmen who think that, well, I'll give you money, but you have to, you have to go on tour and go to this many cities or publish this many albums before you get the name. I mean, yeah. screw that, to I'll be honest. I'll formulate it. You know, yeah. it, it, it. It's just a way of saying the market still is God, you yes. know? Mm -hmm. you, I mean, you fit into it. Yeah. I just give, give the artist space and time. You know, give them what they most need, which is a quiet, you know, non-stressed environment to do what they feel called to do. Um, and don't try to instrumentalize it immediately. Don't don't immediately try to, you know, let it be itself. Yes. And and trust that God's work, you know, ways are worked more deeply by the way that speaks to you than by, you know, don't don't make the give that writer a week you know, in a cabin somewhere, but don't immediately have to put them behind the pulpit to read their short story out to you during the sermon. Yeah. You know, um, let it be a short story that they read in a coffee shop or, God forbid, a bar somewhere. You know, sure. um, uh, don't 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 instrumentalize. Don't don't make everything utilitarian. Let mm -hmm. things be. Give them the space and time to be what they are. Um, to let art be art. Because this is how we grow and change is, is when we give people a chance to achieve excellence, you know, that becomes something that creates, it creates envy. Like, oh, I want to, I want to be able to do that. Right. I want to be as good as that. Someone once said Christianity itself spreads by envy, you know. Who are these people? They're, they're kind. They're loving. They're not selfish. You know, mm -hmm. you know but the same thing is true with, with good art, you know, mm -hmm. the people who've mastered, who've really put in the 10,000 hours, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, you know, that excellence, that devotion, that work uh, is attractive. It will generate, it generates desire. And so the young people will look at that and say, I want to get to that place, you know, and I think that's why it's worth supporting people, you know, sometimes because the market won't necessarily reward them to get to that place. We give them the space to achieve that level of excellence and quality, and then it inspires all of us. Yes. So maybe the the patron of the arts applying the uh, Christian virtue of patience, <laughs> <laughs> and and not throwing conditions always on everything. You know, yes. of, of, of you know of, of deeper trust in the artistic process. Yes. So on the other side of this, uh, obviously, sometimes art that that is is created in these spaces um, does not get found out and is is unknown, like you were saying, un unknown or unacknowledged in its time. Um, and I wanted you to, you to speak to that a little bit. In, in your essay, Real Presence, you say, invoking presence through the careful delineation of a fictional character or the application of brushstrokes is an arduous enterprise. In the end, it can only be sustained by a belief that there is an unseen but real presence, with a capital P, behind each of our lesser experiences of presence. So it is something I've been thinking about that for many artists, uh, a big part of their, their work and their efforts is unseen by others. And even after a work is finished, sometimes attempts to showcase that fall short of what their hopes or expectations might be. Um, the book doesn't sell, the video doesn't get many views, the performance uh, or gallery is sparsely attended, just like you were, you were speaking about, the things that uh, maybe don't sell as well. And uh, all those experiences can be discouraging, but set against the backdrop of the presence of God, 
how ought artists to think about those sorts of experiences um, or the, the hours of unseen or unacknowledged work that they've put in? Well, the, the thing I was getting at in that essay was this question of presence. I mm. mean, again, to me, people forget, people tend to, they fall into the idea that faith is about believing certain doctrines mm. um, or behaving properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they forget that at the heart of our faith, the fundamental experience is that he is here. He is present. He is, God is with us, yes. right? And the doctrines and the behaviors arise out of our relationship to someone who is present to us, someone who, with whom, who wants a relationship with us. Yes. And it's it's always, you know, a dangerous thing when you separate these things and they become they float away from each other and people start to forget. Morality comes not out of a list of arbitrary uh, things that somebody just decided to follow these rules, but they come out of how do I honor this relationship, mm-hmm. this creator who loves me? How do I honor? and who made others like me. How Morality comes out of how I understand this relationship, this presence. And the more that we remember that faith is about encountering Christ, encountering the presence of God, the more I think we're open to how art does what it does, which is to capture a sense of presence, a human character. Uh, a scene that, that that an artist helps us to see with eyes that we can share, where we we become aware of concrete human beings that we relate to, yes, and not and not ideas that we think in our heads. Because if faith is reduced to ideas or behavior patterns, it's going to become boring, yes, or just it just won't draw. So that's what the piece about presence was. Art can be a place to capture presence, where we we worship together to capture presence. We the communion sacraments are a way of celebrating God's presence. Art also, and again, it's it's a way of countering abstract culture war, politicized mm-hmm. you know arguments, and reminding us of our humanity and our fragility. As far as art that's obscure. You know, we have to, yeah, we have to just literally keep our eyes open. The role of the curator, I think, is more important than mm-hmm. ever in this age of yes. overwhelming content that's out there. Who, who, who's got a good, <laughs> who's got a good eye? Who's got a good ear? You know, yeah. who, who do you go to for recommendations? Because you can't do it all yourself. Mm-hmm. That's why journals, book publishers, magazines, websites bloggers you trust you know you're looking for people whose judgment has been well formed who know how to discern quality from not quality and uh, who you know who presumably resonate with you in some way so i would just say yeah I, the role of the curator is important mm-hmm. in, you know because there's just so much material we need people to be like the bloodhounds who go out there and find it and bring it back to us and drop it at our feet you know with their tails <laughs> wagging behind them beautiful 
So in your essay, The Pixel Was Made Flesh, love that title, um, you talk about the shift from books to digital technology, and you ask the question, if the religious heritage of the West is centered on the primacy of the sacred books, and if Christianity understands its savior as the divine word, how will the digitally reared generations come to perceive God, grace, and the biblical narrative? And uh, you you follow this up with the statement, I cannot pretend that I have answers to any of these questions. <laughs> uh, but perhaps ironically, we wanted to see if you had an answer. <laughs> and um, basically asking, you know, as, as books have kind of ceased to be the, the most consumed form of artistry, uh, um, at least among the, the youngest generations, how ought Christians to kind of think about that shift? And what, uh, what warnings or encouragement might you have for the artist today who wants to carry forth truth in these new mediums? That's a great question. I think, you know, there are some encouraging signs. I think when e-book started, you know, originally when Kindle first, you know, became a thing, mm-hmm. there was a lot of talk about the death of the book or the death of the printed book, certainly. Yes. And the good news is that just hasn't happened. There's a kind of irreducible human need for physical books. And you don't have to be a fetishist to, you know, just a lot of people say, well, I I do this sometimes on my Kindle, but I need, there are times when I need, you know, I'm going on vacation, I want that book in my hand or the book I really want to take a pen or pencil to. Uh, That survives. That's that's clearly not going to go away. Yes. I mean, the larger question is what, what cultivates us? What educates us? What, what media? What, what, what? How are we shaped? How are we formed? Because you know, this is what we've been talking about on and off throughout the conversation. Is you know, the things that uh, are are our frail human condition means we're lazy, hmm. and we don't want to do the work. But God created us in a way that, like, if we train ourselves, we get better at things. He clearly wants us to flourish in the, this way. So what are the media, what are the techniques, what is, how can art and literature train our minds and our hearts? And, and how can we take a deep breath and be willing to, you know, kind of do the challenging thing when it's so much easier than just to read a 400-word blog and hmm. feel righteous that I agree with this. You know, yeah. we or can just read the headlines. <laughs> we, as I've said, we these days we often read for what I call self congratulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's you know, so true. We read to pat ourselves. Oh yeah, of course. You know, we beat the tribal drum. I read to be disturbed. I read to be <laughs> provoked. I read to be like, just take me out of my comfort zone. Yeah, and uh, because that's where the greatest revelations have taken place for me. Where you know. That's that's precisely a kind of it's like a miniature version of conversion. Like right. I've come at the world with clutching to my my ego and my idea of things, but I get knocked on my butt, and you know, and I look up into the sky and I see it for the first time. Right? It's like yes. Saint Paul getting knocked on, literally knocked on his butt, is a kind of the ultimate <laughs> metaphor of conversion yes, experience. And sure. I want art to do that for me. I want yeah. it, I want it to shake me up. That's what the arts are so good at. My hope is that people realize that there's that, that anything that takes discipline and mastery is liberating. That is the whole point. The point is you get good at something, it frees you up. Don't just go for the candy, you know. Yes. Eat your vegetables. <laughs> like, you know, cultivate your own 
inner life, the way you would your nutrition, you know, your cultural nutrition is just as important as your physical nutrition. And, and, you know, and, and challenge yourself, you know, and that means don't always do the easy thing, do the good thing. Yes. Well, since our time is short, I want to go to one final question here. In your essay, Transfiguration, you state this purpose for the arts. At its best, art transfigures the world around us for a brief time, strives to let the radiance of truth, goodness, and beauty flash out for an instant. Art wakes us up, trains our perceptions, and reminds us that when we try to build rigid structures around presence, we inevitably lose what we attempt to keep. The purpose of art is not to strand us in an alternate world, but to return us to the realm of the ordinary only with new eyes. I love that. So you've been on this decades long journey, as we've talked about shepherding image journal and engaging with these uh, incredible pieces of art. And maybe this relates to the, the being knocked on your butt thing you were just talking about, but how has that stewardship of image changed you as a person and allowed you to return to the ordinary with new eyes? Well, yeah, I think, you know, the paradigm here is, is the Odyssey, right? I mean, the Odyssey tells us of this hero, Odysseus, who's off, been off to war, but the war ends and he's got to make his way back home again, right? And, mm-hmm. and he has all these adventures with the Cyclops and the Sirens and all kinds of crazy stuff happens and he has to be clever and daring and, you know, all those other cool things the Greeks wanted us to be. But in the end, what does he do? He comes home to his wife and to his son and to his and and how does how does he recognize you know uh, he recognizes the marital bed as the kind of place that uh, uh, you know this is uh, this that's 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 my home. This is mm-hmm. my place, and that's when his wife recognizes who he is and that that kind of going back to the ordinary is 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 really the gift of the art gives us it's the you know the transfiguration itself the metaphor uh that that christ gives us there one of the great interpretations of the church fathers of that story is it wasn't an an event where suddenly the world gets charged with a shining light that's not usually there what happens at the transfiguration is that the eyes of the disciples are suddenly opened Mm -hmm. to the shining radiance of god's presence that's always there Yes. Right? And it's it's going back to this notion that we're fallen people. We get bored. We get we fall into despair. We get we think the ordinary is just ordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, our in our relationships with our, you know, beloveds and and we're t- we get tired and we get grumpy and we get downcast and we fail and and it really gets hard to see that that the grace the grace that is constantly present, the shining presence mm-hmm. that's always there. And you know the the idea of art, as I say, is it's not to meant to take you off to some la la land. It's to meant you, you know, help you sit down to dinner and realize that something sacramental and magical is happening here. Yes. And that's that's the beauty of it. It, it you go through all the journey of whatever the artwork is asking you to, to follow in order to sit your butt down at the kitchen table, hmm. and to know you know know him and know the world that he created in a new way. Well, speaking of presence, thank you so much, Greg, for being Mm -hmm. physically present with us here. Um, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation, been blessed by it. 
if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with you or learn more about your work, where should they go? Oh, it's pretty easy to find me these days because <laughs> you can go to Gregory Wolf, that's wolf with an E, mm-hmm. dot com or slantbooks.org, which is my current project. I'm trying to do with books what I did with a journal for many years. So yes. I hope people will follow me on this new journey. Excellent. Yes, listeners, please do that. And thank you again for joining us on Forefront 360. For those of you listening, keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art.